Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Okay, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. As always, I'm here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my good friend. Very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, kick us off, please. Good morning, Todd. And yes, so I have a question for you. What do you think it takes to observe a goose foot or describe the tongue of a woodpecker? <laughs> Monday morning, I, you're making me think hard. I, I, I don't even know how to, I don't even know what those are. Exactly. My feeling exactly. Uh, so in Walter Isaacson's biography, which I recently read of Leonardo da Vinci, he describes da Vinci's method, particularly he says it's rooted in experiment, curiosity, and the ability to marvel at life. And the two things that I just described were the list of things, things that da Vinci writes about that was his on the to-do list. So what came to my mind is to be curious and to be engaged means to have a flourishing interest in the world around you. And today's children need help to remove barriers that come in their way of marveling at life. And that reminds me of uh, John Kabat-Zinn. He is an American professor emeritus of medicine who created the stress reduction process and brought mindfulness in medical practice. And he defines mindfulness as paying attention to something in a particular way on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So to link these two things, you know, the tongue of a woodpecker and mindfulness is to be a citizen of 21st century, we need to do that. And that's why it brings me to our very special guest. He's a pediatrician who loves children and cares deeply about families. And what he talks about in many of the books he's written and talks he gives that children with ADHD, when we manage them, and not just limited to children with ADHD, but children in general and families who are managing a monumental task of raising children is to understand their needs and really give a comprehensive care to them. And particularly talking about ADHD is one needs to approach it by changing thoughts, changing the general thoughts about development and kind of changing the environment in the house and finally becoming very engaged parents. So what I uh, can't wait to tell you all is we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Burton. He is a developmental pediatrician and author of How Children Thrive, Mindful Parenting of ADHD, and the Family ADHD Solution, which integrate mindfulness into the rest of evidence-based pediatric care. He is a contributing author for the book Teaching Mindfulness Skills to Kids and Teens. Dr. Burton is on faculty at the New York Medical College and the Windward Teaching Training Institute and on the advisory boards for the nonprofits Common Sense Media and Reach Out and Read. He is a regular contributor to Mindfulness Magazine and his blog is available through mindful.org and a psychology today. So we will have a lot of articles that I'm going to attach in the show notes. So please refer to them. And so it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Burton. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So let me start and say, on this podcast, we discuss executive functions. So how would you describe your own executive function? And as a developmental pediatrician, when did you discover 
this connection between your own executive function and the children that you serve and the families that you take care of. That's one of the more interesting approaches to executive function anyone's ever asked me. <laughs> um, you know, executive function, I think, is really the heart of how all of us manage whatever is going on day to day. So it's an interesting question. I'm not sure how to answer what my own executive function is. I have, you know, it's, I think executive function is a skill set that involves managing and coordinating stuff in general. So anything in life, I think the way I often describe it to parents that might involve management probably involves executive function. So like managing emotions, managing projects, managing time, managing our attention, all of those are executive function-based skills. So I think my personal experience with it has always been kind of intuitive. It's not something I thought about much personally until you know my professional life sort of mirrored it. So I guess personally, it's something that has always come relatively um, easily for me, and I'm very thankful about that. But I think it's much more pertinent to really start looking at it in terms of you know my professional field, where over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been this just explosion of research into executive function that's really changed how we look at it in two very profound ways. One is, is that it is a developmental path, just like we can keep track of and try to develop language skills in kids or motor skills in kids. We can look at executive function that way. And the second one, which is particularly radical, is that typical brain development of executive function matures until our late 20s. So, you know, um, the expected development and maturation of the human brain goes on much farther than people used to think. Yeah, and thank you for taking the time to answer this. I know this question often stumps people, particularly experts like you, who probably are very successful primarily because a lot of these orchestration skills were intuitive which has contributed to your success. I mean, you wouldn't be writing four books and manage all that you do in a very successful way without the help of a phenomenal executive function. So I appreciate that. So let's start with defining ADHD. I find that, you know, being in practice for the last 20 years, I am very confused and uh, puzzled by people's resistance to receiving a diagnosis or wanting to not have it somehow. And also different experts are involved in diagnosing. So since you're a developmental pediatrician, you're the first point of contact for most families. So how would you say, what is ADHD and how does one define it and diagnose it? Well, I think there's, there's, there's two or three initial things to consider when it comes to ADHD. And I think the first one, which I know we're, we're planning to come back to later, is just recognizing that executive function, that these self-management skills are a very vital and important developmental path for all children so that we need to start from the point of view, which is actually a big change in my field. It's amazing. I guess before I started practicing, but not that long ago, relatively speaking, like 30 or 40 years ago, there was still debate about whether there was typical development. So we, we know, and I think it's kind of intuitive that children develop at their own pace and and then we can try to build skills in kids who fall behind. So that's useful to know both about kids who are developing typically and about kids who are having difficulties. When it comes to executive function, you know, it's practical to have some sense of what to expect of a five-year-old versus a 15-year-old for any parent. When it comes to what it means to have ADHD, the amount of judgment and resistance is really just makes it that much harder for parents. It's important to recognize that the genetics of ADHD are basically as strong as the genetics of height, meaning we know beyond a shadow of the doubt that when someone really has ADHD, it's a medically based disorder as a first step. Now we can discuss separately, it can be misdiagnosed and that's a different issue. But for any individual who has it, it's a 
developmental delay, practically speaking, of executive function, meaning you have a child who, just like a peer who might be two or three behind years behind in language skills, and no one, you know, that's very upsetting and no one needs to be happy about it or should be happy about it, but we don't blame anybody and we try to get them services. When it comes to ADHD on a practical level, ADHD has long outgrown its name. It's not an attention disorder. When, by the way, when we talk about ADHD, it now includes the term ADD. It's all considered one umbrella. So that's, that's also confusing because some people have this condition that has hyperactivity in the name without the hyperactivity. But that's all because in yeah. the end, to have ADHD means you're significantly behind an executive function to the point that you're undermining your own life in some way. And it's just as real as any other developmental delay. You know, and this is such an important point that you make that this ADHD equals uh, executive dysfunction. And to me, this is a recent conversational topic amongst the those who diagnose or uh, di- relay this information. I find that very amusing that even a lot of parents who come with a diagnosis and the neuropsychological testing, they would like to not share that with the teachers or educators somehow because they are afraid for what that means. But I like this explanation that you gave. It is a genetic disorder and it is uh, as determinant as height is, you know, as genetics contributes to height. So I appreciate that. When is it that when people come into your practice, uh, I'm sure you see a range of children that you serve, not just ADHD, but when you see it, a lot of pediatricians that I work with have told the parents to wait and watch. What's your stand on that? Well. You know, as a specialist, I only see the people who have gotten referred already. I think the most important thing about the initial evaluation of ADHD that really needs to be reframed for a lot, I think it's not needs to be, but it's helpful to reframe for a lot of people, is that the initial evaluation is, is really just informational. I think a lot of people get overly wrapped up in feeling like a diagnosis of ADHD is a commitment to treating with medication, and it really isn't. In the beginning, you just want to know why someone's having difficulty, and you can choose to you know, choose to support them in lots of different ways. But it can really shift a lot, just in essence, take the blame out of a situation to realize that somebody is behind in executive function skills primarily. So there's sometimes room to watch and wait, just depending on how much difficulty somebody is having, because there is a developmental aspect to executive function, to ADHD, and we can watch for short stretches of time. Although I would often suggest, too, that a lot of the non-medical interventions are just going to be helpful anyway. So if you realize that executive function skills, these sort of life management skills like managing your schoolwork or managing your social situations are challenging, most kids are going to benefit from the more behavioral approaches regardless But at the same time, at the beginning, there might be a short stretch of time to watch and wait, but you never want to let anyone struggle for very long without trying to offer them some help. I love what you said. I think this approach is very distinct because pediatricians that tell the families I have worked with, for example, wait and watch, they do not introduce the term ADHD, but they say wait and watch. What I'm hearing you say, that initial evaluation is more informational. I think that's so powerful because one, you are giving an explanation that potential rationale behind such presentation. Nobody's making this up. This is legit. And second, you're also offering such a compassionate, patience-based approach that parents can feel that, yes, I do not need to resist medicine as if medicine is the only approach. And now I know Thomas Brown, we we were at the conference where we heard him as well that uh, believes that medication is absolutely mandatory. So what do you think about medical management in terms of, I'm not saying in isolation, but do you believe 
to manage ADHD, medicine is essential? Well, again, I think we're jumping ahead too quickly on some. I mean, I'll answer the question, but it's this. I, I think the discussion of medication often just you know scares people away, and I think the way to look at ADHD initially is that somebody's behind in skills that often we don't think of as skills. They, they you know, they, they get mislabeled, kids get mislabeled as being lazy or not caring enough or not trying hard. But executive function are the skills we use to persist and plan and work hard and show good judgment. So that I think the initial reality of dealing with it, the initial reality of looking at executive function and ADHD is just to to kind of come back to where we started. You know, I, I think a a maybe simpler understanding of, of mindfulness is something all of us can connect with without practicing mindfulness. I don't, you know, I don't insist everyone practice it, but the concept is to just see life with clarity in some level. We're just all caught up in assumptions and, you know, reactions and habits and behaviors that just, you know, a way we see the world. So we have somebody who's struggling at home and we've been caught up understandably in all these cycles and arguments around it. And it's really confusing. It's not an absence of skills. So some days go well and some days don't. And the whole thing can be really challenging. So to come back around to your question about the medication, I think far more important initially is just trying to see things with clarity. Just let go of all the assumptions and just, you know, for example, one of the, when I do teacher training, one of the uh, examples I use a lot is forgetfulness is an ADHD symptom. So if you blame someone and just keep marking their grades down for forgetting to hand their homework in, Mostly, you're just going to undermine their motivation because that's actually a symptom of what's going on, and it may get easily labeled as just not caring enough. And if we just, you know, if we just push you more, you're eventually going to remember. When it really needs a much more concrete solution than that, it needs the grown-ups to come in and teach someone how to be less forgetful. So that when I approach ADHD, there's there are so many parts to it. You don't want to get overly focused on the medication because there's many, many pieces to it. The medication doesn't fix everything, and yet. The reality of ADHD is the research says two or three things that are, you know, are not the common perception. The medications have been around close to 100 years. They've been shown to be quite safe and quite effective when they're used appropriately. Most people, if they're managed well, don't have persistent side effects. They shouldn't. I mean, the goal is none, and that's attainable for most people if they're managed well. Um, so that the real most important thing, I think, for understanding ADHD medications is that it is an evidence-based recommendation, that it is quite effective for most people if they're managed meticulously, and that they really aren't inherently any better or worse than anything else being used in pediatrics. So if we, you know, for example, or in life, really, if we have high blood pressure, for example, we might try managing it with diet and exercise first. If that doesn't work, we're definitely going to treat our high blood pressure and with ADHD, if you're going to make a decision around the medication, often you need to sort of cut through and let go of all the garbage you're reading online and just recognize, but there's so much misinformation online. I guess that sounded a little negative, but you know that, that's been documented. I mean, medical information online is quite often misleading. So you just want to look at the facts. And the facts are that used well, they're um, often quite effective. They don't change personalities. They don't have persistent side effects for most people. You can stop them if they do. And that's the reality of the medication. Is they're, 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 an, they're an evidence-based, quite safe option for ADHD. That's really the short of it. Wonderful. And actually, you, you answered this question again. What I'm hearing you is your approach is very uh, big picture. You know, take the entire uh, child into consideration. Bring back this focus that presentation is indication that somebody's behind, not intentionally creating a ruckus or a challenge <laughs> for managing that child. 
One quick question about the ADHD and the comorbid disorders. What do you think about, or can you comment a little bit about this complex ADHD presentation where the child is not just not paying attention, but may have anxiety disorder, a conduct disorder, or depressive elements? How should one go about thinking about all these groups of disorders that go hand in hand? Well, I think it's it's been so well documented that most people with ADHD have more than just ADHD going on that that's really how it, it's just something we need to keep in mind anytime ADHD is around. And I think there's several different components to it. Not every, It's one of those things where you don't want to overthink it. It's not like things are going to be hidden, but at the same time, if things aren't going as smoothly as they might or, or as you're beginning an evaluation, you do want to have some perspective on some of the more common things that go along with ADHD. One of the most significant ones, which we haven't touched on yet, is the huge impact it has on families and marriages and parents. And so, you know, in essence, that's part of the term comorbidity you're using, by the way, is to put it in simpler terms, means that most of the time other things tag along with ADHD. The term. So medically speaking, what comorbid means is that one thing's happening with something else. So when it comes to ADHD, family stress is really important to manage because many parents of kids with ADHD are feeling swamped and overwhelmed. Their children are delayed in the skills that allow them to be independent and self-sufficient, which is exhausting for parents, not to mention the stress of just watching your child struggle. So if a parent with ADHD is going to feel grounded and resilient to manage ADHD, you want to bring that into the discussion as a a parent's experience of it all. And then for kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD, the research, again, says that up to two-thirds of people with ADHD have something else going on. And if you think about that medically, you know, the way I often describe it is if two-thirds of kids with asthma also had kidney disease, clearly we would screen everybody for kidney disease at the point we diagnosed asthma. And that's kind of what goes on with ADHD. So one group of conditions, one group of concerns you have to think about are that at least half of kids with ADHD often have a, also have a learning disability, so that when someone shows up with academic difficulties in ADHD, it can be easy to assume it's all due to the ADHD. But for a lot of those kids, they also need help with some specific area of academics. That's one group of issues that can go on. And then there's a whole longer list that includes behavioral concerns. Oppositional behavior is one, although you know I tend to be very slow to use the term oppositional defiant disorder, which is one that's commonly used simply because If you have an immature brain manager, you're going to come across as oppositional quite often, even though a lot of that has more specifically to do with your ADHD than actually choosing to be difficult. But there's a behavioral component to it. And then there's real complexity to what you can look at is that a lot of the things that can mimic ADHD are also the things that can co-occur with ADHD. Anxiety is one of the biggest ones. So if you're anxious, it can be hard to focus. But if you have a life management disorder like ADHD, it clearly causes tons of anxiety. And then you can just have both conditions. Some people say up to 30% of people have symptoms of both ADHD and anxiety. And the bottom line is really just getting the right supports in place. A lot of the time, the way you're going to sort all that out is by especially beginning the the non-medical interventions like parent supports and educational supports and therapy. And then also... You know, one nuance, again, comes back to executive function, which is anxiety alone. You wouldn't typically expect to be disruptive of the big picture of executive function to such a degree, like organization and planning and foresight and all the rest of executive function. I love the way you, you're pulling it all together, that life management disorder requires life, life management support, which is often so missed. And particularly coming from a medical professional, it is such a, you know, it's a, such an assurance to me that because you giving that advice will confirm it 
or the families that it is a genuine disorder, not something that you need to occasionally accept or it's not dependent on acceptance. I always tell people that, you know, do you debate with your doctor if the doctor diagnoses your child with diabetes? You know, you wouldn't say sometimes he has diabetes and sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> so right. similarly, I think if they view ADHD with much more seriousness as a disorder and not a behaviors that sometimes present themselves or not. So let's talk about the parenting uh, with child with ADHD. Uh, you have some wonderful advice as well as a method, methods that you subscribe, uh, prescribe to the families. How should one uh, consider treating ADHD? Well, obviously, that's a very broad question. One of the most important parts is just recognizing that you know, everyone's doing their best from the beginning. So there's no, there's no specific should to it is because that, I think, is a setup for someone to you know, feel like they're not doing what they should, in essence, which can only make things worse. But the bottom line, so what you really want to think about is individualizing it to your child, which has many components to it. The first one I often describe is really beginning, if you're going to understand ADHD, it does mean, like we've been doing today, broadening it to look at it as a delay in executive function. And then I think that shift in perspective to sort of suggest, like in any situation, what if my child was you know, you hypothetically could be several years ahead in a particular skill, it could be several years ahead in of peers in more concrete skills like reading or math or some sport or even cognitively, whatever you want to look at, but they're three or four years behind in executive function. And that initial uh, sort of mental exercise is a major shift often. You can look at the morning routine, for example, and kind of just take the judgment out of it. What if my nine-year-old has more like a four or five-year-old's ability to manage the morning in the long run, we have to catch them up. In the short run, really, everyone's going to be happier and more successful if we just meet them where they are developmentally in that moment. Then the way I think about intervening for ADHD is, is kind of like filling in a pie chart. I mean, the, there's no one approach. It's knowing it clearly, seeing it clearly without judgment. This is ADHD. And then looking at what can we do to support kids. And one of the fundamental starting points is recognizing that ADHD affects planning and persistence. So the person with ADHD is in a unique position, as far as I'm aware, which is to say that any plans that they should or could be making to manage their own ADHD are going to be undermined by the fact that they have ADHD. So especially in early childhood, really all the way through middle school and sometimes even high school, it's no different than if you had a child who was really behind in, in any other skill. They're going to rely on the grown-ups to come up with the routines they learn from. And that's very hard in some families because ADHD is so highly genetic. But there is a component of it that has to do with adult supports that need to be implemented at school and home. And then because children are living within that structure, they're going to, you know, they're going to learn from those types of supports. And that could be anything from managing time in the morning routine through study and writing skills. And then there's a huge behavioral component, too, which is that even in well-behaved well kids with ADHD, they're often being corrected way more than their peers. They're just getting, and they need it. So we can't get rid of that. They're off task. They're forgetting. They're doing these things. So they need to be reminded. They need to be corrected. But that cumulative effect eventually begins to influence how they feel about themselves and their confidence and their mindset. So that being really structured in how we parent kids with ADHD almost always has benefit because it does take effort. You know, it take, if you can think of, for example, the average busy family morning, you're trying to rush out the door and your child you know, may get two or three things get done totally on their own independently. And then the first feedback they're going to get from us is, 
you know, what are you doing? You're leaving without your backpack or what are you doing? You're leaving without a shirt, you know, whatever it is. I mean, some, whatever kids do stuff. But the point is, is the first feedback they're going to get from us often is that correction, which, and the only way to sort of shift their self-perception, kids are so driven by just their immediate experience. They, they need to feel supported and they need to feel successful and they need to, you know, they thrive off of positive feedback and empty feedback has no value which means you know, we can't just praise them for just standing there unless that's what we've asked them to do. But, but most of the time, we need to come up with specific things. And it just takes work. It takes structure. You know, I often describe behavioral management of kids, even well-behaved kids with ADHD, kind of like putting a dietary intervention into place for someone who has some sort of disorder where they can't eat gluten or something. It's very disruptive and takes a lot of work, but we do it. And for kids with ADHD, that's the sort of two sides of being a parent of ADHD is, is doing what we can to create the structure they're going to learn from and doing what we can to create the structure that's going to help them develop confidence and mindset as they grow up. Well, as you're describing this and having done this for 20 years, you know, the challenge I notice is there's a, I call it, you know, there's a apple and there's a tree. You know, those parents who are trying to bring structure or implement processes that require over time monitoring and supervising may fall through the cracks then because they themselves struggle with ADHD and are not consistent, which creates um, quite a, a chaos at home. And that's why I love that you, you know, you talk about not only the holistic comprehensive approach to managing ADHD, but you bring in this mindfulness perspective. So let's talk about mindfulness. What is mindfulness and how does this apply in the context of raising children? Well, I think mindfulness is having its little pop moment in the sun, so it's getting very you know, it's it's sort of being boxed in very minimally. Even going back to the classic definition, I think you can start teasing out the the aspects that are really practical in everyday life. So mindfulness is really much bigger than most people think. It's a ongoing practice, a lot like physical exercise, of specifically trying to build traits in ourselves that help managing difficult situations, managing the reality of life easier. So it's not one specific thing. It's not sitting still. It's not perfection. It's not always being calm. It's really very actively looking at the fact that when we don't give life our full attention, we're often distracted. We're often not paying attention. We're often sort of giving things just like half our attention. And that's inevitable. Practicing mindfulness doesn't change that. But when we're not giving things our full attention, we tend to be on autopilot. We tend to be just falling into habit. We tend to be missing details falling back on assumptions. So the practice of mindfulness, to go back to that definition, tends to people, you know, the beginning practice, there's really several different things we're working on. The first is more moment-to-moment attention, not with perfection. Our minds are going to be busy whether we meditate or not, but we get better at catching ourselves when we're distracted and coming back to more fully just giving attention to having dinner with our kids or giving attention to a, a work project we got to complete instead of all the distractions of modern life. So there's a piece of it that has to do with that. And then, you know, one definition is more is giving more moment to moment attention to our lives with unbiased awareness. And that's the loaded comment, really. But typically, we're living our lives really caught up in a lot of habits we've developed over our time, assumptions we're making about ourselves or our kids or the world around us. There's just a lot of reactivity and, and kind of fixed thinking about things. So the unbiased awareness part is catching ourselves and settling. And that's really there's really kind of three components the way I've been thinking about mindfulness later. So the first part has to do with dealing with the reactivity and distraction. We're catching ourselves, we're settling, we're building our own resilience, our ability to 
kind of be you know fully aware but not reactive at any moment and then through that it's kind of like trying to you know deal with a snow globe if we just keep snake shaking the snow globe up all day long which is what our minds are often like we're never really going to see what's inside clearly so because we get out of stress and reactivity we generally start to see things differently and we're able we we can only begin to live differently and make changes and when we create that kind of space to really just observe like wow you know i always say that and really the first thousand times i said it it didn't really change anything so you catch yourself and then maybe even before you know what else to say you catch yourself and just don't say anything that time and then maybe over a couple of weeks that homework discussion goes differently or you make you know there there's so many layers to this one of the most common ones in parenting that people describe that we all have i mean it's actually not just people not just parents but everyone describes is this sort of inner judgmental self-judgmental voice self-critical voice I mean, it's just pervasive in parenting. I should be doing this better. I should know what to do now. I can't believe how I handled that. But that, you know, isn't necessarily a productive voice. There may be uh, really research says pretty profoundly that if we can begin creating some space from that perfectionistic, harsh voice, we tend to be, it changes how we relate to people around us. It allows us to problem solve better. It allows us to persist and motivate ourselves better. So to come really, you know, to sort of come back to a more concise take on it, Mindfulness practice is is a way of like hitting the gym and building the traits that let us just manage the fact that parenting is challenging more easily to the benefit of everyone else. And that's the other last component of mindfulness practice is it's not meant to be self-help. It's meant to be, you know, the real core assumption for anybody, but particularly for a parent, is that when we allow ourselves some time to build our own resilience, that totally benefits everyone around us too. It, It helps you know, our spouse and our kids and everyone else we're dealing with all day. Wow, that is very, <laughs> and not something I I typically thought of mindfulness. So can you just reiterate those three parts one more time, the way you conceptualize it? Sure. I mean, so there's an initial component to it, which is putting the effort in to improve our own ability to stay focused and settled without perfectionism, but just improve on it. And then another way, you know, the analogy, another way of looking at that part of it has to do with stress, just you know, managing, just staying more settled under stress, which leads to the second part, which is because we're more settled, because we're able to see our lives with more clarity, we can start working with some of the habits we've fallen into, you know, non-judgmentally, we all have them. So we can start working with clarity on living a little differently wherever we see it. It could be with our own inner world. It could be literally how we deal with situations around us. And the third part is, you know, that bigger part having to do with really the concept of compassion of just, you know, because we're living that way, we can start to, to interact with everyone else around us differently, see their perspective more clearly, and it, you know, it affects everyone else too. Okay. So then tell me a little bit about this last part that you mentioned. Mindfulness is not meant to be self-help. Can you help me understand that a little bit more? Yes, I can certainly do that. And it's actually far more straightforward than it seems. I mean, I, I think, I mean, we, you know, we can sort of talk about it more on a philosophical level, but on a very concrete level, really the assumption is is that everything we do impacts everyone around us, whether we wanted to or not, so that when we think of, I mean, one example I've sometimes used, and this is, you know, I, I sort of hesitate a little to bring it up because it's important to recognize we all fall into these patterns. So this isn't judging anybody. You know, we all do this at times. But if you think about, for example, you're having a rough morning, getting out the door and get all caught up in it. And the last thing that happens before your child gets on the bus is sort of bickering back and forth for a moment. And then they get on the bus 
you can start to recognize that on a very specific level, that interaction, you know, we're unsettled. And then that next interaction unsettles our child who then who knows what they do on the bus because that whole, you know, it's just that's the, that's the reality of just the cause and effect of life. You know, these things happen. And again, it's not that we're not going to all of us aren't going to do that sometimes. But at the same time, the what you know, the, the sort of underlying premise of practicing mindfulness is if we get better and better at catching ourselves and maybe as we feel ourselves getting caught up in the chaos of the morning, settling for a moment, that's the moment where we might catch ourselves and realize what we're about to say and recognize maybe this wasn't the most skillful thing to do. And then we handle that moment a little differently, which are which clearly our children benefit from, our family benefits from, and then out from there. So that that is, you know, the 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 more the depth of mindfulness practices recognizing that. And then it's tough because I know we're gonna be ending soon to open up such a big topic, but there actually is a specific practice within mindfulness we can do of, of really actively reminding ourselves that everyone is trying to you know, everyone in life in their own way is trying to be successful and trying to find ease and peace in whatever way they're doing it. And that's a more nuanced concept than it seems. So if you think about a child with ADHD who's constantly struggling and, or constantly isn't really fair, but is you know, having a lot of difficulty is a better way of saying it. It can be really valuable in a particular moment to just catch ourselves long enough to remind ourselves that they're, you know, they're throwing that tantrum in the store because they really, really want that toy. And it doesn't mean they're going to get the toy and it doesn't mean they shouldn't get in trouble. But there's a, there is a perspective we can bring to that situation of just reminding ourselves, like, we're both really stressed here. You know, we're both trying our best. We're both. And it doesn't fix, you know, you know, again, I'm sort of, I would normally open up an idea like that and then talk about it for the rest of the session, you know, long time. But the core concept is like in the middle of whatever we have to do practically to manage the situation, it has a lot of psychological value, a lot of practical value to remind ourselves that in the middle of this difficulty, I'm just doing my best as a parent and, you know, and you're throwing that tantrum for a reason and I don't love it and it's stressing us both out and, you know, and I'm still not going to buy you that $4,000, whatever it is, you know, $400, whatever it is. And there's a reason behind what you're doing and, and I can still see your struggle. So there, there's many, many layers to all of this. Um, Thank you but, for taking the time. Yeah. I think what, what I'm hearing you describe is this incredible patience and a, in, in a deep, kind perspective of the universal goals that all human beings have is our desire to have peaceful life, our desire to succeed. And then those uh, particularly in care, under our care, particularly as parents, if they're struggling, it's our job to offer that optimism and just kind love while they struggle. So, you know, even maybe allowing that struggle to be uh, not removing the pain of the uh, su- pain and suffering so much, but kind of being close and witnessing or being with them is what I'm hearing you say, right? Yeah, that's, that's a, that, that is a part of it. But and, and just to come, you know, to really hone it down and, you know, that all just starts you know, you don't have to go down there to just start practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness just begins with catching ourselves and settling. You don't, we're not trying to force ourselves to feel any way. We're not trying to, you know, create new pressure to think a certain way or act a certain way. It's, you know, it's not artificial at all. It's meant to be very practical and accessible. The beginning point, and it's perfect if that's all it ever is, is just recognizing that our minds tend to get distracted, caught up in all these different fearful thoughts and reactivity and negativity and all these habits. And there's value to just practicing coming back more often without any belief, you know, that we're ever going to be perfect in any way. 
but we can work with it just like we can you know, try to exercise regularly, even though aging is still going to happen too. You know, it's like both things are true. Got it. So at the end, this idea of mindfulness is so essential and valuable, but what if the children are not buying into it? Uh, how do you suggest, particularly teens, who probably will benefit a lot from this when they are going to start driving or they're going to take a lot of decisions that may not be favorable to their own future. How do you see that being implemented? Well, mindfulness isn't anything you can tell anyone else to do. It's challenging for many parents because it seems like if you, most of us, if we explore it, realize it would be beneficial for our kids. But it's really a way of living. I mean, the, the bigger picture of mindfulness is just what are the, what's the perspective we're bringing to the challenges of life? So, you know, the bottom line on some level as a parent always is just practice it and don't get caught up in making your kids do it. Trust the fact that if your kids see you living that way, they're going to learn from it. And for many families, that's more than enough. That's, that's wonderful. And then if your kids start to show interest, it's more like planting seeds. It's like because it becomes part of family life, because it just becomes part of how we're living, you know, then you can just gauge your child's interest. And the most important thing is just making it developmentally appropriate. And clearly, it's going to be different for different ages. Teens want to be separating from parents often. And often, if they hear it from their parents, they're less likely to engage than if they hear it from a school or a peer or a peer group. And, and then younger and younger kids, maybe you fold it into bedtime or you teach, you know, it, it, you know, you make it part of relaxing for sleep or, you know, there's many different ways to do it. But the most important thing is once you start trying to force someone to do it, it's really going to actually probably make it harder for them. So in closing, what are the best places or tools that you recommend? Uh, I think your books are phenomenal. So that's a great resource. But if the parents need to learn the technique of mindfulness, what resources do you recommend? Where do well, they get the training? I mean, we're living in an age now where, you know, getting started is relatively straightforward. So I think <laughs> there are, um, there, I mean, it's everywhere at the moment. I mean, the easiest thing for many people to get started, although again, if you want to really explore it, you tend to have to move on from apps, but the structure is most, you're, you're trying to form a new habit of catching yourself a couple of times a day and practicing. So that starts um, with just starting in essence. So the, there are many, many, I have lists on my websites of these types of resources. There are many apps that are available with guided practices. There are countless books that are available that sort of explain the bigger picture of mindfulness. There are classes that are available in many communities you can find online in many different ways. And then one of the things that's happening a lot is many psychologists nowadays have a background in it. So if you're, if, if as a family, because of whatever else is going on in life, you've been working with a psychologist, they can often in, uh, introduce it too. Wonderful. I myself have, I have done many meditation classes myself, but I do an integrative, uh, I am uh, training. I've done I am and I, I practice that in my daily life. As you mentioned, it is, it is truly, truly a, a, habit and it's so easy to get off the habit and uh, the benefits are incredible. So Mark, what I love uh, the, uh, your approach is I think rarely uh, physicians um, bring in this holistic approach to managing a disorder that has such a complex presentation and lifelong consequences. So you families who encounter your approach are truly blessed because they are set on the right path to consider ADHD in a different light. And thank you for bringing that perspective. In closing, do you have any final thoughts regarding what is the most pivotal thing to think about, even if ADHD is not fully managed and struggles are not gone away? Uh, do you have any closing thoughts about that? Well, I think it's always about, I mean, again, we're talking about two different things. I think any parent, it can be worthwhile 
to understand executive function because it really does help you see at different ages what's realistic to expect of your child, you know, early elementary school versus high school. So there's a broader perspective of just seeing things clearly, and that's really what's most important with ADHD. So most kids with ADHD, if you really look at it, you know, there's a lot of struggle to ADHD in the short run. There's a lot of risk to ADHD if it's not treated in the long run. But the most important thing is that if we see it realistically and really just work on it and understand it for what it is, kids do great and families do great. And I think that's always the bottom line is if we see it with clarity, then then most kids are going to thrive in the long run. Well, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and explaining this very complicated topic and bringing a very warm and approach, warm and, and really truly implementable approach to managing executive dysfunction and ADHD. So once again, thank you so much, Mark, for being on this podcast today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was good talking to you. Have a good day. All right. That's all the time we have for today. If you know of anyone who might benefit from listening to today's episode, we would be most grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dr. Mark Burton, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thanks for listening today, and we look forward to seeing you right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.